So, <laughs> there's an elephant in the room, huh? And uh, it's, th- it's this uh, virus. It's this pandemic now, they're calling it. And so, it seems silly not to talk about it. So, let's talk about it. Um, as we do that, as we talk about this and we talk about kind of what's happening in our spirits underneath it all, um, there's a little bit of a sense of uh, preaching to the choir here because you're the ones who are here, obviously have a little bit less sensitivity to, uh, to the worries that are going on. But I think as we look at what is, what I think is really at heart in the sense of panic and the sense of fear and stress that is, that is running through our, our, really the planet, but especially our country and, and our culture here, the ways that we can move through this is going to be germane, no matter what. And for those who are streaming, because there's lots of people that uh, have called in and said either they're staying home or they're sick already, not with the virus, but they're just sick. And so they're streaming and they're here. Um, it's just a way of how can we move through? What are some of the things that we spiritually should be looking at as we're dealing with everything that is coming across? And, you know, I'll confess that at the beginning of this thing, a couple of months ago, even six weeks, four weeks ago, I was still pretty skeptical. There were such wildly conflicting stories in the news and everything I was reading and couldn't tell if this was really serious, if it was just uh, the media, you know, ramping things up. I remember working in Mexico when the press was talking about how bad things were in Mexico. You know, like Americans were getting swept up off the street corners at every, at every opportunity and kidnapped and this and that. And, of course, we experienced none of that. And so I kind of learned then things can be very different in terms of the way it appears on the little screen and the way it appears in life. And I didn't know if that was what's going on. Obviously, this thing is continuing to escalate and to ramp up. And so... We've got to at least take it seriously, if for no other reason than for the real world and real life consequences and effects that are taking place. You know, even now, the CDC is still telling us that it's a pretty low risk infection, this COVID 19, that 80% of the population will need no or minimal medical attention uh, through it all, that it's high transmission, but it's low mortality rate. And so all those things are encouraging, you know, as we, as we look at this unfold. But underneath all that, we just don't know, do we? We just don't know what is really going on and what's going to happen. And we just can't know anything except these effects that we're seeing. And the effects are getting pretty drastic. I mean, we've seen schools closed. And the schools are closed all throughout California and many other states. Sports closed. NASCAR running their races to nobody except the television cameras, NBA, baseball season delayed, all these things that just seems like they could never happen. These are staples. These are institutions in our life. How could this be happening? Conventions being shut down. I heard that the city of Austin is going to be devastated this year financially just because of South by Southwest, this one huge convention that hit Austin there every year amounted to about 35% of their income. It's kind of like retailers missing Christmas, and all of a sudden it's gone, you know? These kind of things have real-world consequences. Churches, of course, especially the larger ones, they're all shutting down. The stock market, even though it rallied a little bit um, a few days ago, but it has taken this huge dive. And, of course, the thing that probably hits us the most are the stores, I mean, there is just something weird about walking into a store and seeing empty shelves. You know, it is just bizarre. The panic buying, some of you have probably um, 
seen some of the uh, videos online, you know, of uh, the Costco people running through and and then fighting each other and uh, for toilet paper. I mean, it just seems so absurd. But here we are, you know, here we are. And that's when it got real. It got real for me. You know, Marion and I walking into the store and the paper product aisle was completely empty. And then you start to think, you know, what, what if I can't get these basic products? If I can't get food, if I can't get paper products, if I can't get, you know, fill in the blanks. And that's when it became real. I know that we were in there. We were looking for some uh, paper products primarily. And um, everybody's doing the same thing. And so you get into these conversations with people. I don't know if any of you have done that. And it's kind of this uneasy, everyone trying to maintain like they're cool, you know, like it just doesn't really bother us. We're above it all. But there's this underneath, there's that kind of unease as you're even talking and laughing and trying to make jokes about the situation. But that's when it really became real. And for many of us, this is the first time in our lives that we've ever seen anything like this. All of the infrastructure of our lives just seems like it's there. It's always going to be there. It's always been there. And we can't remember anything else. And suddenly we're seeing how the basic structure of our society could fall down and could collapse. You know, this uh, executive of the Food Association or something was telling everybody, you know what, we still have products in the pipeline. You know, we'll get them to you on a daily basis, but you've got to do the, the right thing here and stock up for 14 days because if you have a quarantine, that's what you're going to need. That's great. Stock up for, but don't stock up for two and three months like some people are doing because that empties the shelves and then other people don't have the products. And so trying to call for some calm there. I don't know how many of you, I think some of you, most of you, it looks like, probably remember the gas rationing of the 70s. You remember that? When OPEC shut off the gas, do you remember the odd and even license plates? You know, you could if you had an odd license plate, you could only buy gas on odd days or even days. And then the, uh, the uh, gas stations started putting out flags. Green if they had gas. Yellow if they were rationing. Red if sayonara, see you later. Continue on. Seems crazy, right? But we're remembering that now. Lines at the gas stations now. My parents remembered Rationing from World War II, and there's nobody in here who remembers that. But I'll tell you, that was intense. And we don't realize what it cost this country to enter in and supply that war. People had books of stamps. And this is the only way that you could buy the things that you needed. You had stamps for sugar. You had stamps for meat. You had stamps for eggs. You had stamps for everything that you would buy at the grocery store. And you could only buy those things if you had the right stamp. And the stamp had to be authorized by the rationing board. And there was this and all these other regulations. Rubber was at a huge premium because the Japanese took all the rubber-producing countries right at the beginning of the war. We couldn't get rubber. Gas was rationed. Mostly to save the rubber, not even just the gas, but to save the rubber and the wear and tear on tires. You couldn't buy tires. In fact, the automobile industry was mandated by the government to just stop making automobiles in 1941, period. And then as they reopened their plants, they were only making military vehicles. For four years, from 1941 to 1945, no civilian automobiles were made in this country. What? But that's what it took to supply that war. There was a 35-mile-an-hour national speed limit that was imposed, again, to save gas and to save rubber. And we just don't think about these things. They've happened in the past. They can happen again in the future. 
under the right conditions. And we're seeing some of that right now, even if it's just because of our own panic behavior, even if there is no interruption in the supply lines, we're still seeing that same thing happening. And here it is. How many of you have experienced an earthquake? You know, the scariest thing for me for an earthquake, when it starts and you get into your doorway or whatever it is that you do, is how long is this going to last and how bad is it going to get? And you're going through the shaking and the rumbling and there's that thing. Is it going to keep going this time? Is this the one that's going to keep going? Are things going to start falling through the ceiling and you just don't know? It's that unknowing. It's that uncertainty that gets you. And then when you feel it crest and start going down the other side, then you can breathe that sigh of relief. But that unknowing is the thing that really, really gets us. This time that we're going through right now is bringing out the best and the worst in us. I don't know if you heard, I'm sure you heard, everybody's heard that Tom Hanks and his wife Rita have contracted uh, COVID-19 down in Australia and they put out a press release and it was so classy and it was so well done and it was so encouraging to the rest of us that they're just going to do what the authorities tell them to do and, and take it a step at a time and we'll let you know what's going on and thank you very much. You know, that kind of poise, you know, that kind of gravity is so needed at a time like this, especially when you're faced with something you really don't know. How bad is this going to get? You know. On the other hand, we're seeing the panic buying. We're seeing people waiting in lines. We're seeing them fighting over toilet paper and running through stores to get the things that they need and stocking up. Picture I saw of one man with three full shopping carts of paper products, jamming them into a car. It's like I could probably provide enough paper for six families especially for that 14 or 21 day period, you know, all of this crazy, the best of us and the worst of us is showing through in this. And it reminded me of the opening lines of the novel Tale of Two Cities. Y'all read that? I want to remind you with the most famous and one of the best, you know, this is probably the best selling novel of all time is Tale of Two Cities. And the opening paragraph is just iconic. And he writes, it was the best of times, And it was the worst of times. It was the age of wisdom. It was the age of foolishness. It was the epoch of belief. It was the epoch of incredulity. It was a season of light. It was a season of darkness. It was the spring of hope. It was the winter of despair. We had everything before us. We had nothing before us. We were all going direct to heaven. We were all going direct the other way. In short, The period was so far like the present period that some of its noisiest authorities insisted on its being received for good or for evil in the superlative degree of comparison. And what's he talking about? He's talking about the period to the run-up to the American Revolution and the French Revolutions. The two cities are London and Paris and the story of what's happening on both sides of the channel. And... He's talking about, you know, the, the novel was, was written in 1859. He says that time, a hundred years before, was so like our present time. But it's so like us today in 2020, isn't it? Think about what he's saying there. It's all happening now. Because human nature doesn't change. Technology changes, but human nature doesn't change. That's why we see these things over and over again in these cycles 
the best of times and the worst of times. You know, technology has made this an amazing time to be alive. Wouldn't you agree? The things that we're doing, able to do, that we're on the cusp of, the kind of information that's at our fingertips, and yet these things, 24-hour news cycle, internet, social media, they are two-edged swords. Because they can inform us and they can connect us in ways that we couldn't be connected before throughout the entire world. But they can also drive information, panic, anger, and unreasonable reactions that we would never do otherwise. And so we have to realize that best of times and the worst of times all at the same time. I've been asked recently about the end times. Is this the end times? Is this the beginning of the end? And, and I know you've got to be thinking about that, right? We've been, we've been indoctrinated here for the last 40 years with the idea that the end times are here. You know, it's been two generations now of, of speculating and, and reading the scriptures in a certain way to, to try to understand when the end times are coming. Is this the beginning? You know? Personally, I would say no. Even with the most literal reading of the, the scriptures, the apocalyptic scriptures and others that are used, there are certain key signifiers that are not in place yet that would kick off the, the sequence. But we don't know. And that's the thing. We just don't know. All of this is something that is so difficult for us to deal with because we just don't know. And I was thinking, again, with so many suspended services uh, with the churches, we debated whether we should be here this morning. And we talked about it with the board, and we talked about it with our staff, and we talked about it with a few people when I grew up, especially in the Catholic Church, the church building was always open. Do you remember that? It was always open. You could go in any time of day or night and just kneel down, pray, light a candle, and just be part of that experience. That was a beautiful thing. That was a comforting thing to know. Even if you never did it, it's like it's comforting to know that the ocean is just five miles away. I hardly ever go there. But I would miss it if I was in Arizona, you know. It's kind of like that, you know. Just knowing that the church was open, I could go there anytime I wanted. And so we thought, what better way that can we talk about what it is that's going on in society than just being here? Now, I didn't know. I'm so glad there's as many of you as there is. I thought, maybe I'll be alone with Mary and just talking to the camera. That would have been okay, you know. I would have done it just for the streaming if that's the way it worked. But here we are. We thought, okay, well, let's, let's stay open at least for now. I mean, of course, we're, we're canceling the uh, social event on Friday, and we're going to keep monitoring things. And if it becomes necessary, of course, you know, we're going to put our safety first. But right now, it is good to be here and to be doing what we're doing. And we're small, and so we knew you guys could make space for each other. And as this all has been ramping up, I've been thinking about why this is so stressful, why this is so frightening. Aside from the fact that it's like a bad movie script, and there are so many of these movies out here that follow the same sort of pattern, right? Aside from that, um, with so few actual cases and such low mortality right now, why is there such a reaction? Why are we all reacting the way that we are? And I think I hit upon a, an article 
that I think just really hits the nail on the head. And I want to read this to you, just uh, an excerpt, but it's a little bit longish. But I think it's important for us to, to understand what this psychologist is saying. I have some of it in your in your bulletins. I'm going to read more than is there. I just put the highlights in there. So I'll tell you when you can follow along with me if you want to. But he calls it the psychology of uncertainty. And I think this is perfect. The psychology of uncertainty, how to cope with COVID-19 and the anxiety that it creates. If you follow social media for any length of time, you might feel like going to bed and pulling the covers over your head. Long-standing research shows that chronic TV watchers and news followers have elevated fears because everything they see starts to feel like it's happening right outside their front door. Isn't that a great point? I mean, think about it. When you spend a lot of time watching the news, doesn't it feel like it's right here, like you open the door and you're going to see terrorists out there or something? I mean, that's the way this works psychologically. And I've lost my place. A mind is a terrible thing to waste. The coronavirus is here, and some news feeds seem to be exaggerating the fears. One major channel played ominous background music. This is a news channel playing ominous background music as the news reported restrictions, school closings, banning social gatherings over 200 people, the stock market plunging, social distancing, schools closing, travel bans, the NBA cancellation. Is your heart slamming against your ribcage yet? Minimizing the virus is not good preparation, but neither is overkill, overblown coverage, and overreactions. It's easy to freak out when you see these drastic changes and face uncertainty. The key is to remain level-headed, sensible, and avoid stressing yourself out. Easier said than done, right? In some cases, panic due to the drastic changes and the unknown are traveling faster than the coronavirus itself. You can pick up with me now. The psychology of our country is at stake. If you're like most people, uncertainty can cause you tremendous anxiety. Why? Your survival brain is constantly updating your world, making judgments about what's safe and what isn't. Due to its disdain for uncertainty, it makes up all sorts of untested stories hundreds of times a day because to the mind, uncertainty equals danger. If your brain doesn't know what's around the corner, it can't keep you out of harm's way. It always assumes the worst, over-personalizes threats, and jumps to conclusion. Your brain will do almost anything for the sake of certainty, and you're hardwired to overestimate threats and underestimate your ability to handle them, all in the name of survival. When certainty is questioned, your stress response goes haywire, instantly arousing your stress response, kicking you in the pants in an attempt to spur you to action and get you to safety. Waiting for certainty can feel like torture by a million tiny cuts. Sometimes the brain prefers to know an outcome one way or another to take the edge off. Studies show that you're calmer anticipating pain. You're calmer anticipating pain than anticipating uncertainty because pain is certain. Scientists have found that job uncertainty, for example, takes a greater toll on your health than actually losing the job. Statistics also show that you're more likely to maintain the stamina to continue taking risks after a car crash than after a series of psychological setbacks. That's fascinating. This part is not in your insert. 
British researchers discovered that study participants who knew for sure they would receive a painful electric shock felt calmer and less agitated than those who were told they only had a 50% chance of getting an electric shock. This is really interesting to me. <laughs> Research scientists have long said that every thought that enters the mind eventually finds a place in the body where it bears the burden. Psychosomatic stuff. You're stressed here, it's going to come out someplace else, right? You all have, I'm sure, experienced that. You can pick it up again. Your mindset during this crisis is everything. Your mindset during this crisis is everything. Your perspective is the most powerful thing you can control in a situation that is beyond your control. Yes, these disruptions are scary, but fear, panic, and worry are not preparation. They add insult to injury. Another layer of stress that can compromise the immune system and paradoxically make us even more vulnerable to the virus. Molecular scientists have discovered that certain stressful thought patterns, such as rumination and pessimism, do you know what rumination is? Just thinking about something over and over and over again and looking always at the causes and the consequences but not the solutions, just constantly rehearsing that over just like a cow chews its cud. That's the same word for them, rumination, right? Another layer of stress, where was I? Stressful thought patterns such as rumination and pessimism can shorten, all, uh, shorten our telomeres, the encasings at the end of our chromosomes, the stress of which can make us age faster and die sooner. There's an actual medical reason this happens. So in addition to washing our hands, we need to cleanse our minds to offset catastrophic thinking. Yes, things are going to be different, but ask yourself if it's the virus that scares you or if it's the drastic changes, the uncontrollable and the uncertainty that scare you. Meanwhile, once we stay informed and follow what the experts tell us, our best ally is to find the opportunity in the difficulty, the upside to a downside situation beyond our control, and make the best of an inevitable situation one step at a time, which will contribute to your well-being and your being well. I think that just so hits it on the head. It's the uncertainty that is the spirit killer. The uncertainty is what gets us every time. It hits us at our most vulnerable human spot. You know, that survival instinct that he was talking about. It creates more stress than almost any other experience in our lives. Now, at the same time, this disease is presenting us with an opportunity to deal with uncertainty in a very specific way. If we can work through it here in this situation, you know, kind of like in a petri dish, in a lab, if we can work through it here, we can work through it everywhere in our lives. It's kind of like New York City. If you can make it there, you can make it anywhere, right? Same thing here. If we can do this, if we can use this pandemic, this stressful time, to work through the way that we deal with uncertainty, then... Maybe we can find a way that's really going to help us just work through life. I put three points on your inserts there, and I want to go through them and and see if we can look at them from both a psychological point of view, but also from a scriptural and a spiritual point of view, because that's why we're here. All of these things ultimately are going to, the buck stops at our spirituality. The buck stops at that desk whether it's psychological or whatever, medical or whatever, eventually it gets down to our spiritual health. Because if that is our foundation, we're going to be okay. 
And I love the way he put these, these three points. First one, your brain will do almost anything for the sake of certainty. Your brain always assumes the worst, over-personalizes threats, and jumps to conclusions. I love that part about over-personalizing threats. Doesn't it always seem that it's, it's you? They're dealing directly with you? This is all designed just to get you? I mean, there's so many things because that's the survival instinct kicking in. But we will do almost anything for the sake of certainty. If there is no certainty, we're going to try to create it. We're going to imagine that it's there. We're going to create the illusion of some sort of control. And this is what certainty comes down to. If we're certain about something, we control it. At least there's something that we have in the palm of our hand that we can control. It's ours. This is why people tend to hang on to their misery. Because misery is something that no one can take away from you. It's always yours. They can take away everything else, but they can't take away your misery. That's something we hang on to, something we control. We will try to create some sense of certainty or some sense of control. And this is why we imagine faith as certainty. We want it to be certainty because it's so difficult for us to deal with a mystery. It's so difficult for us to deal with life having uncertainty as its core. We imagine that we can interpret Scripture absolutely certainty with absolute certainty as an absolute. We'll do anything that we can to try to get this idea that we can control something. To imagine faith as certainty is to imagine faith as just a mental phenomenon. It's just what we believe in our heads. That's absolutely right. We're absolutely certain about it. But that's not biblical faith that we've said so many times in here. Biblical faith has nothing to do with what you think. Biblical faith is what you do. And to be able to act in the presence of uncertainty, in the presence of doubt, doubt is mental uncertainty, to act as if the things that you say you are convinced of are really true, and to keep acting on those things as if they are true in the presence of of a lack of evidence in the presence of uncertainty and doubt, that's faith. There is no other faith. We've all been taught that doubt is the opposite of faith, but doubt is not the opposite of faith any more than fear is the opposite of courage. We need to realize this. Courage is the ability to act in the presence of fear. Fear defines courage. Courage doesn't exist without fear. And it's the same thing with faith and doubt. Life is made of uncertainty. We've got to face that fact. It's never going to be certain for us. But faith lives us, lets us live anyway. That's the key. Life is uncertain. Life is full of the doubts that we have about our own survival, our ability to handle what is in front of us. Faith lets us live anyway. And to keep living until we start to find trust in the things that are trustworthy. Which then allow us to enjoy the ride. To actually enjoy our lives. Not just grin and bear it. But enjoy our lives in the face of the doubt and the uncertainty. That doesn't happen until you get to trust. The faith step is still full of doubt and uncertainty. 
But repeated experiences of trustworthiness allows us to finally get to trust. And then the stress and the anxiety goes down. Take a look at James 1.5.8. It's so interesting to me that as we've started James on, two, on Wednesday nights, that this first section is just lining up so well. And we talked about this a week ago, I think it was last Sunday, where he said, why did James start his book the way he did, these first 17 verses? It's because his people were coming to him and saying, why, James? You know, why, our leader? Why is everything so difficult? Why is it so hard? Are we going to be able to survive this? We're doing everything right. We're following Jesus. We're doing everything that you've told us to do. Why is it still so hard? What is going on here? We're afraid. We don't see the way forward. The Romans have their boot increasingly hard, raising taxes, making it harder for us to live. The Jews are persecuting us and killing us and rooting us out. Why is it so hard? We can ask the same thing. What's going on here? Why is the stock market falling? Why is this happening? Why? Is there any reason? Are we going to be able to survive it? What's going to happen? We're asking the same questions. But what James says here, at least in verses 5 to 8, seems to contradict what I just said about doubt. And so I'm going to have to do a little dance here to get it around, right? But what he says, he talks first about endurance. And then he talks about wisdom. It doesn't sound like it's a, an effect of endurance yet, but he's making the point here. So when he starts at verse 8, he says, If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives to all generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him. Now, just take a look at that sentence from our point of view. If you lack wisdom, just ask God. Later, he's going to say, you have not because you ask not. So if we don't have wisdom, we just didn't ask God, right? we got to ask God, who gives to all generously and without reproach. It'll be given to him, but, here's the big but, he must ask in faith without any doubting. Oh, my gosh. For the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. For that man ought not to expect that he will receive anything from the Lord, being a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Now, I don't know about you, but it seems to directly contradict everything that I just said about faith and doubt. It sounds like what he's saying is, is that we have to have this belief so tightly down. Otherwise, we're not going to get anything from God. All these things that we so desperately want and need. That is a scary, scary passage to a Western mind. But we need to take a look at it in terms of the Jew who is actually writing it. If faith is not mental belief, if faith is not mental certainty, but the ability to act in the presence of doubt, then to ask in faith has a whole different connotation than it does here. We ask in faith without doubt, but we're going to have to understand what that really means. And we've got to go back to the word ask. To ask in Aramaic is selu. Selu has the same roots as selah, which is the word for pray. Selah is pray, selu is ask. They are related in their meaning, and the root meaning of both of those words is to actually lay a snare or set a trap. When you pray from an Aramaic point of view, you're setting a trap for God. I love that image. And if you think about it, it's everything that you would do to lay a snare carefully, cover it over with leaves, arrange everything back the way it was, retreat with your trip wire back into the blind and wait absolutely silently, still 
in solitude for something to happen expectantly. Every hair, every nerve on a trigger end, right? This is the idea of prayer, to clear that interior space, to set that table, to set that snare, and then to retreat in silence and stillness and solitude, expectantly waiting for something to happen. With that same idea, to ask is not just a passive asking. I'm not going to ask God for wisdom and then just sit passively on the couch and wait for it to happen. No, it's like a police interrogation. There's an urgency behind it. And ask is only kicking you into the next phase. Ask is that deep, deep desire and longing that moves you into the next. Jesus said, ask, seek, and knock. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you shall find. Knock, and it will be opened. Ask, selu, is that desire, that deep desire that moves you forward into the seeking, be'ah, which is a diligent search from inside to outside, leaving no stone unturned. You program people will know it as the fourth through seventh step, that, that starting from inside and just purging everything, leaving no stone unturned. And then into kosh, which is to knock, which literally means to nail in a pent tag, pent tag, <laughs> nail in a tent peg or strike a musical note which seems really strange to us, but it means to make something real. You put in those tent pegs, you build that tent, and suddenly you have a space in which a family can live and do something that's real. You strike a musical note, and now it's real for everybody who is in range of the vibrations. It's to realize something. This is a process that Jesus is talking about. It sounds like he's just poetically saying the same thing twice for emphasis. No, One thing leading to another, it's a process that starts with that deep desire, that longing, that asking, that divine dissatisfaction and blessed unrest we talked about a couple of weeks ago that moves us, there's the faith, into action to actually do the search, starting from the inside and moving to the outside. Not about blame or trying to find out what is starting here and then actually to realize what is going on. We understand doubt as mental uncertainty. But doubt biblically is simply the inability to act in faith. The inability to move from selu to be'ah and then to koshv. The inability to complete that circuit and move through. Doubt is inaction. The inability to act. And so the opposite of faith is not doubt. The opposite of faith is inaction. Not being able to move through and do something. This is what he's trying to tell us. This is how it all works. That uncertainty, that fear that we're feeling right now, if it causes us to do hoarding runs, if it causes us to empty out shells, regardless of what anybody else needs, regardless of what anybody else is looking for at that moment, then we're operating out of fear. That action itself is doubtful because it's not moving us in the direction of faith. There's no faith action there. What is the faith action? Well, it's to be responsibly prepared. Do what you're supposed to do, but to never have it eclipse your concern for other people. To have the concern for the community. You know, just as as Frank was praying at the beginning here, the middle here, you know. The prayer has to be for the community. It has to include everyone. 
If we think that we're going to be fulfilled and happy and fearless and stressless in isolation as we get ours at the expense of everyone else, we're kidding ourselves. All that will do is further ingrain the fear, further ingrain the stress. As you sit in your bunker well-supplied, you are still fearful. You're still waiting for the next bad thing to happen. But when we open up in faith, everything changes. Even though on paper we're much less secure, we're not going to feel that way. The second point. Your mindset during this crisis is everything. Your perspective is the most powerful thing that you can control in a situation that is beyond your control. Maintaining this rational and balanced view, keeping our fear in check, being able to see, you know, both sides of an equation and not just sucked into one. James at, at the second verse of the first chapter, consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. Consider it all joy when we're going through this kind of stuff. What's he talking about? He's talking about taking God's long view, the longest possible view. That when we work through these difficulties, when we continue to act in faith, when all the alarm bells are going off and the survival instincts are kicking in and we can still work through faith and endure, then everything starts to change. Literally every time we do that, every time we act in faith instead of the programming, we are breaking down the doubt, which is the inability to act in faith. And we're gaining this wisdom. We're gaining this compassion. We're gaining this connection that we wouldn't otherwise feel at a time that we absolutely need it the most. Breaking down doubt. If we can see it that way, then everything changes. How does Paul put it? Take a look at Romans 12.12. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what the will of God is that which is good and acceptable and perfect. Now that's in the NASB, but take a listen to it in the NLT, the New Living Translation, and see if it helps a little bit in terms of what we're talking about. Don't copy the behavior and customs of this world. Right? Don't be first in line and running down the aisle in Costco. (laughs) But let God transform you into a new person by changing the way you think. Then you will learn to know God's will for you, which is good and pleasing and perfect. I like that. God will transform us when we don't copy the behaviors and the customs of this world, when we continue to act in faith. How does God do that? How does God transform us? Well, he's not just going to download the things that we want. This isn't Matrix where you can just plug in the program and now I know how to fly a helicopter. God, I would love to be able to do that. doesn't work that way. He's not going to download it, but he will empower us. He will be right with us as we act our way into right thinking. We always want to think our way into right acting. It's nice, I guess, if you can do both at the same time. But primarily the way we change is to act our way into right thinking. This is what Paul is saying. This is what James is saying. It's our action repeatedly showing up in a constant direction that changes the way that we think. This last point. Our best ally is to find the opportunity and the difficulty, the upside to a downside situation that is also beyond our control. Well, the opportunity and the difficulty is the chance to act faithfully. 
to see it that way, to stop looking at it as this curse, this paralyzing fear that causes us to want to go in and just put the covers over our head, but a chance to act on our faith once again in a way that is so meaningful, that is so specific, that is so right now, to act faithfully in the presence of security, to act counter to our fears and our survival instincts, and most importantly, to continue to act to help others, to include everyone that we meet, everyone in our path, whether it's in the grocery aisle or on the street or wherever we happen to be, to include them in the calculation. Because if we can't do that, then we remain in fear. When we break through that and connect with each other, everything changes. This virus is showing us who we are. The best of times, the worst of times, the best of us and the worst of us. The uncertainty is going to do its job on us, and we can't deny it. It's going to be driving us to act instinctively. It's going to be driving us to act in fear of our survival. That's hardwired. That's a good thing. If we didn't have that, we would be dead long ago. And and not just as individuals, but as a species. We need that. But the balance of this, because we are created to rise above the mere programming of our species, We are designed to rise above those survival instincts. And faith is the agent for that. Faith is continuing to act in the defense and protection of others. In other words, in love. That's the faith walk. If we just, this one thing, if we just measured each action that we are going to take against how it helps our family members, our neighbors, defined as anybody who is right in front of us in our path, and our community, how would that change what each one of us does? Just that one thing. Measure that against how it helps family, neighbors, and community. How would that change what you do? You're still going to go to the grocery store. You're still going to make sure you have enough TP and food, but it's going to be reasonable and you're going to leave things for other people. It's just the way it's going to work. And if everybody did that, we wouldn't be having the nearly the crisis that we're having right now. It would be changed at least interiorly, even if the virus were still as severe as it is. If we just did that one thing, how did Jesus put it? We sung about it here just a few minutes ago. It's no greater love than someone laying down his life for a friend. And this doesn't mean your physical life. It means to lay down your survival instincts for a friend, your instinctive behavior for a friend, your fears for a friend, to go against your programming and do something that includes other people. That is an amazing thing that only humans can do. At the end of the novel of A Tale of Two Cities, I don't know how many of you know that novel very well, but it revolves around a love triangle between a woman that two men love who happen to look so much alike that they're often confused for each other, Charles Darnay and Cindy, Sidney Carton. They both love Lucy. Lucy loves Charles. She doesn't love Sidney. Sidney knows it. Sidney's a scoundrel. He's just one of those guys. doesn't have a lot of moral character, and, and he's had a very rough life. And whereas Char- Charles is the epitome of virtue, right? 
But at the end, in the midst of the reign of terror after the uh, French Revolution, where the guillotine is just continuing to do its work, Charles is an aristocrat. He's found out and he's imprisoned. Sidney, loving Lucy as he does, knows that she will never really be happy with him. And so he switches places in prison with Charles, lets him go, and sacrifices his life for his rival's life so that his love will have the life that she dreams of. And at the very last, before the blade comes down, he says those amazing words, right? It's a far, far better thing I do than I have ever done. And a far better rest I go to than I have ever known. If you're looking for that rest, where you're going to find it is in the laying down of the things that you're hoarding in your fear. That doesn't mean there isn't balance. But if you're looking for the rest, that's where you'll find it. When you lay down your life, when you lay down your instincts, when you lay down your fears for someone else, you'll find a far better rest than you've ever known. In this time, any time. Let's pray. Father, we're human. We ask you to be with us through everything that is happening, through thick and thin, through as long as this crisis lasts, but just in general, just in our lives. There will always be one crisis after another, one uncertainty after another. Father, we ask that you would continue to be with us, even though we know you're always there. It doesn't always feel like it. Help us to find the way to direct our actions so that we will find you and learn to trust you. And even when we're living in our uncertainty and doubt, we know that we know everything will be all right, even though it's scary right now. So, Father, you know our hearts, you know our doubts, you know our insecurities, and we know that you forgive us for them. Just keep molding us and shaping us, drawing us and guiding us so that we can follow your ways, not ours, but your ways to that rest that we so desire. And we love you, Father. Thank you for loving us. Never let us forget. We can only love because you love us first. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's all stand. You can maintain your social distancing.